Crazy things going on in our world right now, huh? Golly, my heart was... It's been heavy with all these different shootings that have been going on, but um, yesterday was just too much. Um, It's really, really, really heavy. Um, And just a reminder, our world needs Jesus so desperately and the only way our world gets jesus is through us and through us living uh our lives sharing the gospel and this is one of the reasons to be perfectly honest why um not only does the church need vibrant marriages but the world needs to see the church living in vibrant marriages because it's one of the ways that I think the world can look at us and go, okay, there's something different with you guys. So I just want to commend all of you for being here these six weeks. And um, I know that there are quite a few people that signed up for this class that have been watching online um, since we we offered that and that worked better for them. But um, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm not speaking to an empty room and that some of you actually came in person. So um, that's great. But uh, let's pray and then we'll jump into this tonight. Father, we come to you tonight with hearts that are heavy because of the the sin, the depravity that we see in our world. And Lord, we pray, we pray tonight for all of those parents of those precious, precious little kids that are now in heaven Pray for your comfort to come upon them during this time, that they would turn to you and the family of the teacher as well that was killed. Um, Lord, it just reminds us of how much this world needs you to show up and to show up in us. And Lord, we know that one of the ways that you like to do that is through living and and expressing yourself in the lives of two people, two married people who are loving you and loving each other and who are on mission together in this life. And God, I pray that each of us here that we would see this thing that you call marriage, this mission that you have given to us to love you, to love each other, to take care of what you've put into our hands, that we would really see it as an amazing adventure that we get to experience together with you. And so tonight I pray that you would meet us here, that you'd minister to our hearts in this final session. In Jesus' name, amen. So this class in no way has been meant to be an exhaustive study on the subject of marriage. 
Um, there's so much more that could be talked about. Um, but our hope, Denise and I, are, our hope is that this course would inspire you, that hopefully it has inspired you to work on your marriage. And maybe we hope that it's inspired you maybe with some tools and ideas of how to work on your marriage and to really see it as that garden that needs tending and time and attention because when a marriage is being nurtured, it's beautiful. And beautiful fruit is going to be the result of it. But when a marriage is being neglected, as we've said before, things are going to die and weeds are going to grow. Well, tonight we're going to finish up by talking about sex in marriage. And we're going to talk about what I like to call divine romance, because God's the one who put this all together. And really, to be honest with you, I think a course or a study, a series on marriage would be incomplete without addressing this subject. It's important. You know, it's been said, and I think that this has been oftentimes our experience, too, that in counseling, that the three biggest problems that most couples have are finances, communication, and sometimes that'll revolve around parenting and sex. That those are the three that just seem to trip a lot of couples up. And when it comes to the subject of sex, what's important is really our attitude about sex. That's, that's really the place to start because our attitude determines our approach and our approach dictates our behavior. And quite frankly, many Christian couples don't have the right view of sex at all. For many, they have a distorted view of sex because they were very promiscuous um, prior to getting married. And oftentimes they were, you know, very promiscuous because they weren't saved as, you know, before they became, um, before they got married. And so they bring all of that baggage into that part of their relationship and they have just a distorted view. But then on the other side, really the extreme side is you have, you know, some couples or sometimes it's one person in the marriage that was brought up in the church and really not taught the right way about this subject. And so they come into it thinking that sex is dirty and they don't know how to deal with it either in the relationship. Dr. Timothy Keller and his wife, Kathy, have written a great book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. And in their chapter on sex, um, Keller outlines some popular attitudes throughout our modern era. One attitude he says is this, or belief, is that sex is simply an appetite hardwired into mankind. That it is an innate impulse that we should not deny it because it's a lot like food, you know? And I'm, I'm hungry. You know, we, we experience that hunger for food and so we eat and we all have that appetite for food. And if we don't eat, we know that we're going to die. Well, this particular attitude about sex says that our approach is to cooperate and yield with little or no resistance to this human impulse or this human appetite that we need to feed that desire for sex. And so this person seeks to satisfy that craving for sex whenever, however, and with whoever he or she pleases. And we call this an appetite-driven person, Keller said. 
Another popular attitude he mentions is that sex is part of our lower physical nature. In other words, it's just a physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. And therefore, oftentimes, sex is seen as being dirty or sinful and is only meant to be used for procreation. And unfortunately, that has been the attitude throughout the church for a really, really long time. Let me give you some examples. Tortullian, these are two early church fathers, and Ambrose, they said this they favored get this this is this is crazy they favored the extinction of the human race over continued sexual intimacy how crazy is that it's like they would rather see just people die off than to see people to see christians having sex augustine said this sex between a husband and wife it was okay but if they enjoyed it or derived pleasure in any form from it the pleasure then was sinful <laughs> Isn't that crazy so that was the attitude it's like oh, we're not going to talk about this it's going to be kept secret um and and augustine's belief really led to the concept promoted by thomas aquinas that sex was is only for the purpose of procreation in fact in ancient times in england women were told during sex lie on your back and think of the queen that's what he told them just lie on your back and think of the queen and think that you're making some more soldiers for her army all right but listen, that is not God's intent at all. And here's what's interesting about the book of Song of Solomon. Is that this is a book that is inspired by God that talks a lot about physical intimacy and it never once mentions kids at all. Isn't that interesting? Never once. It talks a lot. We're going to see tonight some, some pretty graphic things that is said about sexual intimacy. Not once does it talk about kids. And yes, it is true that God, part of the reason why God created sex is for procreation. But he also created it for pleasure. And that's why it feels so good. He designed it that way. He made it to bless us. There was another attitude that Keller said is that this is the attitude that really came out in the 60s and 70s. And this is the attitude that sex is a way of self-expression and for self-fulfillment. That sex is a way to be yourself and find yourself. That sex is all about self-expression and self-realization and self-fulfillment however you wish to pursue it. And so for that reason, our world tends to say that the most exotic sex is forbidden sex. But that's not true. I believe with all my heart that the, the best sex, the most exotic sex, should be between a husband and wife. That God created sex and desires it to be something that is enjoyed in the marriage relationship. And I believe that we as the church should be the leaders in the world today on what intimacy and romance is supposed to look like. And that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Song of Solomon. Because in it, the Lord deals with the subject of sexual intimacy and marriage. And so I asked you to turn to chapter 3. And let me ask you this question. How many of you like weddings? How many of you like weddings? Okay, most of you. I like weddings. I like to officiate weddings. I think they're great. And tonight, in chapter um, 3, 
verses 6 through 11, we see Solomon and his bride getting ready for their wedding day. Let's read those verses here. Um, Chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, we read, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants, fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it. So this is like his chariot. Of the valiant uh, of, of Israel. So this is Solomon and all of his groomsmen kind of idea. They're arriving um, at the wedding. Behold, it is... So- okay, uh, verse 8. They all with swords, being experts at war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. Of the woods of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a planicum. He made its pillars silver its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And he says this, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see the king Solomon with the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. So this is talking about his wedding day. On the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Now here's what's interesting. We only get a bird's eye view here of the details leading up to that day, leading up to this ceremony, but we get to do something here in the book of Song of Solomon that we never get to do in real life, and to be be honest, we wouldn't want to do in real life, and that's this, God lets us go on the honeymoon night with Solomon and his bride. Now, the reason why we wouldn't want to do that in real life is not because what happens in that setting is dirty or wrong. The reason why we wouldn't want to go with somebody on their honeymoon and be there you know, in the room when that was going on is because we realize this is a private, intimate setting and place. It's not a place for a guest. It's not a place for observers, And that's what makes this such an interesting portion of Scripture. God invites us into this private place. And I think maybe, I don't know, for some of you, this might, what we're going to talk about tonight, might make you a little bit uncomfortable because it is so private. And you know what? That's okay. I think, I think that we kind of would feel a little awkward in, in, in watching this and seeing this. But God, who ordained all Scripture, wants us to see this. And he invites us into it. Now, why would God do that? I think for two reasons. One is so there wouldn't be any confusion that God created sex in marriage to be enjoyed. So that when they end up at the penthouse suite at the Jerusalem Hilton, we're allowed into the room. We're we're allowed into this beautiful private event to watch it unfold so that God would know that this is what he intends for a vibrant, godly relationship to look like. But the second reason God wants us, allows us into this setting, I think, is because he wants us to learn some important principles that we see here about divine romance. Now, I want to say, what we're going to see here is not meant to be at all a step-by-step procedure, okay? 
But it is meant to be some important aspects of divine romance. And when we are through tonight, you might think, well, man, we're not experiencing that type of romance in our relationship right now. And the purpose of this is not to condemn any of us, but it's to inspire us. It's to inspire us. It's to hopefully motivate us to say, you know what, what do we need to do in order to experience that a little bit more? Because as we've been saying, marriage takes work. And so does this aspect of marriage. It also takes work, but it's part of the adventure if you see it that way. And in a healthy marriage, sex is a unifying act. That's why God said in the book of Genesis, and it's repeated again in the New Testament, that the two came together and became one flesh. So here's what I want to give you tonight. I want to give you seven principles of true divine romance that we're going to see as we unpack chapter four of the Song of Solomon tonight. And the first and most obvious one that we need to make note of and is this, is that divine romance is between a husband and wife. And I point that out because we don't see them go there. We don't see them enter into this relationship until their wedding day. They don't go in. In fact, several times in the book of Song of Solomon, we hear her saying this, don't awaken love until it's time. She says that several times. And if you remember, the book of Song of Solomon is this love story between Solomon and his first wife, the Shulamite. And the audience, it's like they're telling this story to the daughters of Jerusalem. And it's kind of like they're, they're teaching them about you know, what romance is supposed to look like. And so several times in the book, she'll say, don't awaken love until it's time. There's a time for this. And the time is now. The time is when they get married. Now, what's interesting is we don't have any details at all about this ceremony. There's no vows. There's no songs. God skips all that part. Why? Because wedding ceremonies vary. Wedding ceremonies are different. Wedding ceremonies, everybody has their own style and their own flavor of what they you know, want it to, to look like. When, when Denise and I got married, we laugh at this now, and, and the pictures are ridiculous, to be honest with you. But, but um, So it, for some of you, you'll, you'll get this because you were old enough. The rest of you are going to have to go Google it later. But we got married during the Miami Vice era. Okay, remember that? All right. And uh, so remember Crockett, you know, he always would wear um, like the white linen pants and the white linen jacket and, you know, polo shirts were in. And so when we got married, I had no tux. I was wearing, you know, these white linen pants, this white jacket. Denise didn't have a traditional wedding dress. It was more, it was a shorter wedding dress. Our um, bridesmaids, because Denise was like, I want all my bridesmaids to, to be able to, to wear their dresses, you know, another time. I don't want them to buy these dresses that they're never going to be able to wear again. So they were in these summer, I wish I had a picture of this. I really, I should, I should have brought it. I didn't think about this till right now, but they, they were in these pastel colored dresses. Okay. 
all different colors, all right, of these like little summer dresses. So there was orange and pink and light blue and yellow. And the guys, my groomsmen, and we had like seven people on each side in our marriage. So you can just see how this is. Our, our, our bridesmaids were in, or our, our, my groomsmen, were, they were in these white um, linen pants and, and Vans white tennis shoes. And they were in these uh, polo shirts that were all the colors of the girls' dresses. So it was very colorful, <laughs> but it was really kind of corny as we look back on it, on it now. But we thought it was really cool then. But um, anyway, um, so, you know, that's what I mean. Everybody's their different flavor. I, I guarantee you, no one has ever copied our wedding, <laughs> ever. <laughs> one thing that we did do, though, that some people have, have copied was... I wanted to have, when Denise walked down the aisle, the whole congregation, and we got married at Calvary Costa Mesa, there's probably about 500 people that were there. When, they walk, when she walked down the aisle towards me, we were all singing that, that old song, um, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord um, together. And it was just my way of saying, I am so much thanking God for this moment. And... Um, and uh, so some people have, did copy that part, but <laughs> the rest of our wedding, they didn't copy it at all. Um, but anyway, so weddings can vary, all right? That's the point. God, God doesn't care about the style and the flavor, but it's interesting when it comes to how you are going to live and love as husband and wife, God does have something to say about that. And he's more interested in a couple learning how to love each other the right way for years to come than he is about the hour or 30 minutes or whatever that they're going to spend a boatload of money on um, to have this wedding ceremony. You know, I, I often say people spend all this money to prepare for this hour and they don't spend a whole lot of time at all preparing for the rest of their life. We should reverse that, you know. That's why it's good that you're here. So he, God doesn't say anything about the ceremony, but he has a lot to say about their lovemaking. And so he brings us into the honeymoon suite to learn some principles here about divine romance. And I want you to note that this is meant to be descriptive, but not directive. In other words, it's not a play-by-play. It's not a point-by-point. It's not, okay, follow this, guys, and you're going to have a great love life, but he wants us to learn from the experience. He wants us to catch the flow and the heart of what's happening here. Now, I want to just pause right here to say this before we jump into this. What we're looking at here is really about romance. Your lovemaking is not going to be like this every single time. I mean, This is their honeymoon, all right? This is their honeymoon. It's a special time of romance and and, and sexual intimacy. And, you know, on a honeymoon, that type of passion is usually very, very normal. So it's not practical for our normal, everyday lives where we're juggling our jobs and all our responsibilities and all the pressures. And some of you have your kids and all of that that's going on. But I will say this. There are some things that we can learn from what's going on here that can be incorporated into our everyday lives that will help build 
the romance in the marriage and in the relationship. You know, life is so busy, and I believe that it's really a good thing at times for married couples to get away, to break from the routine, get away from the kids, where you can go somewhere and kind of recreate that honeymoon experience, so to speak. That's a special time to just focus on you and connect on you and, and together. And when you do that, you are investing in your relationship. So the first thing that we note here is that, before we even jump into the text, is that um, divine romance starts with marriage. They don't go into this place. They have no sexual relationship whatsoever in the book until this moment. Here's number two. Divine romance is affirming. It's affirming. You know, it's been said that men and women have very different sex drives. And when it comes to sex, men are usually always ready, right? Um, For a guy, it's like anytime, any place, Anywhere, you know, just say go, I'm ready to go. And that's, that's most of the time. Men are all about the destination. They just want to get there. Women are about the journey, though. How do, they, how do we get there? And what's interesting is for most guys, nine times out of ten, they're going to enjoy the sexual experience. But you know what? That isn't often the case for the woman. And oftentimes it's more difficult. And that means, guys, we have to be willing to be more engaged, more prone to, uh, you know, learning how to satisfy our spouse in the right way. It's been said men are like a microwave, 20 seconds, and we get heated up. (laughs) Women are more like a crock pot. Slow cooker. Why? Because God made men and women differently for this reason. He made us differently so that we would learn how to love each other the right way. And one commentator said this, If men and women had the same sex drive as a man, they'd never get anything done. (laughs) They just would have sex all the time, right? But then he said, but if men and women had the sex, the same sex drive as a woman, they would get a lot of, they wouldn't get, or excuse me, they would get a lot done, but there wouldn't be any people on the earth. Okay. (laughs) So guys, you need to understand that most women, and I say most, not all, but most like to be romanced. One woman who was counseling with her pastor at one time, you know, it got to this point, they were just, the pastor just looked at her and said, you know, what, what, what do you want? What, what, do you like, what, what do you really want from him? And he goes, you know, I just, I just want him to, to pick me up again. And the guy got up out of his chair and went over and he was like going to, you know, just lift her up out of the chair. And she goes, no, silly, I want you to, like when, we, when you were wanting to date me and you tried to pick me up, in other words, she says, I want you to flirt with me a little bit. And that's often the case. It's been said that a woman's mind is her most sensitive sexual organ. A woman gets ready for intimacy through what she thinks and feels. And oftentimes how she thinks or feels is going to be attached to how you treated her that day. The way you affirmed her that day. 
And so that's why those little texts and those little calls. Now, guys, this needs to be a normal thing, not just on days when you're hoping to get lucky, you know, that night. All right? But those little texts, those little affirmations, we need to learn to affirm our wives, and Solomon is really, really good at this. And so I want us to catch the heart of what he does here. He starts by complimenting her beauty, but we're going to see that, that he's not just attracted to her physical appearance, but he's attracted to her character, her inner person as well. So he starts with her face. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Okay, she's still wearing her veil. Dove's eyes speak of peace and contentment. They speak of, of being someone who is blessed and satisfied. Did you know that doves are faithful to one partner all of their lives? We have two doves. We have this little waterfall in our backyard. We have these two doves that come, husband and wife, and they come and they perch on it like every morning. It's so cute, you know, to, to watch them. Doves are faithful to one person all of their life. So by saying that she has dove's eyes, it's, way, it's a way of complimenting her for her, her purity. It's a way of him saying, you know, I'm glad that you saved yourself for me, that she has saved herself to be committed to Solomon. And he's appreciative of that. Notice how he continues. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Again, guys, these are not lines that you want to copy, all right? (laughs) You probably don't want to tell your wife that her hair reminds you of, of a flock of anything, okay? It's like in chapter 7, he says, your belly is like a round goblet. Um, you know, you never, <laughs> never want to say that about your wife, you know, that her belly is around anything, all right? Um, Solomon, though, was a shepherd. So picture this, okay? To a shepherd, a beautiful sight was seeing a mountainside filled with sheep. And that's what he's picturing here. It's like this mountainside full of, of sheep when he's out there in the field and he's looking at her hair and it, and it reminds her of that. He's, he's, it reminds him of that. He's recalling that memory. So he's drawing on an experience here and this is the lesson. This is the point that we need to catch from this. And this affirming way is learning how to draw on experiences. Learning how to say, you know, I was thinking about you today or I was thinking about this and it reminded me of this time or it reminded me of this about you. That's what Solomon's doing here. And what we're going to see, guys, that Solomon is doing here is what we would call today foreplay. You know, that he is, is affirming her in a lot of different ways and getting her, you know, this place where they're going to make love together. And so he's drawing on this thing that was special to him that reminded him of her. He's not just saying, you know, I love you. And and for us, it's not just saying, I love you, babe, but it's telling her why we love her. It's not just saying that we think she's beautiful, but what about her that we think is beautiful? It's speaking about her character as well as her appearance. And I'll just say this. For some guys, you got to really think through this because this does not come natural to you. Other guys, it comes very, very natural to you. But I'll tell you this, it means a lot to a woman. 
And Solomon is tenderly handling his wife and complimenting here her beauty. Look at verse 2. He says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, (laughs) which have come up from washing. In other words, they're brushed, which is good. And every one of them bears twins, and none of them is barren among them. So he's saying, you know, man, her teeth are, are white. And they're all there. None of them are missing, all right? <laughs> but you know what? Another way of saying this today would, would be like saying, you know, I love your smile. I love your smile. You know, that is one of the, my favorite things about my wife, is I love her smile. And I have pictures of her on my phone and my screensaver and in my office and in every single one of them. She's smiling and sometimes I just look at that picture of her smiling back at me and it just brightens my day. But it's one of those things that I compliment her about all the time. It's just uh, how much I love her smile. And, and, and so guys, you need to think, what are some of the features about your wife that you really appreciate? Her physical features, but also her, uh, of her character. And tell her that. Remind her of that. Let her know how much you appreciate that about her. Notice what he says in verse 3. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. And your mouth is lovely. So this would be like saying, hey, I really enjoy your lipstick color you have on tonight. Your temples behind your veil are like pieces of pomegranate. The idea there is her cheeks are starting now to blush. And he thinks that is cute. So what he's doing here is he's starting with her face and he's tenderly working down her body. Notice verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers all the shields of mighty men. What does that mean? (laughs) No, it doesn't mean she had a long neck. But in that day, the Tower of David was a mighty structure. And the tower was part of the city that stood for safety and strength. And the men of Israel in David's army would hang their shields on the tower in times of peace. So what he's doing here is commenting here on her strength and dignity. That she is a woman who is godly and can hold her head high and he finds that attractive about her. So he's commenting on her character. And again, guys, I would say this. Does your wife know how much you appreciate her strength of character, her godliness, her dignity, finding ways to compliment her about her spiritual appearance, about how much you appreciate uh, that about her. I like to tell my wife that, that I think she is beautiful on the inside as well as on the outside. But let's be honest for a minute here. You know, the older that we get, the harder it is to keep up our physical appearance, Right? I am not the strapping young athlete that my wife married when we were 21 and 22 years old. Um, Not in the least. That was 36 years ago, and now I'm broken. Um, I've had knee surgery, two hip replacements. I'm at least 30 pounds heavier than I was, you know, back then. Um, And that's... (laughs) 
Thanks, Vern. <laughs> yeah, Denise thinks so too, but you know, anyway. But what I'm trying to say, you, you get it. I mean, you know, we, we, we start to, to lose it the older that we get, right? And, um, but I still think, I still think that my wife is so beautiful. And, but I, I'll, I'll say this. I love her more now than I did when we first got married. And when I first got married, I could say, I mean, I, there were so many things I did love about her. Um, you know, I, I loved about her character, and I thought, you know, I still do think she's gorgeous. But my love for her has grown because I've fallen more and more in love with her character. I've fallen more and more in love with the person that she is on the inside and the way that God just, she is you. She stimulates me in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit. And so um, the point of this is, is we, we're seeing from Solomon is that divine romance involves affirmation, and we see him giving that here. He's complimenting her appearance. He's complimenting her character, and he's, he's just letting her know how much he loves her. The third thing that we see in this is that divine romance is tender. Look at verse 5. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns. He's working down, okay? He's working his way down. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Okay, what does that mean? I was teaching at a marriage retreat up in Tahoe a couple years ago, and we were actually looking at this verse. And I asked the question, I said, so how do you approach two fawns, two, two young deers? And a lady blurted out, very carefully. <laughs> but it's exactly the point that Solomon is making here when he says that her breasts are like two fawns. He's saying, I'm going to approach them and handle them carefully, tenderly. Solomon here is describing an attentiveness in the way that he is romancing his wife. Guys, listen to this, that he's not rushing, he's not forcing, there's, there's, he's being slow, he's being tender, he's being gentle, and divine romance involves tender words and tender touch. He's caring for her in a very tender way he wants her to be very comfortable that's the point verse six until the day breaks and the shadows flee away i will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense you are all fair my love and there is no spot in you he's saying that to me you're perfect you're perfect he's expressing though his desire to be with her all night long, until the day breaks. In other words, there's no hurry. There's no hurry here. You know, as I mentioned, that I think it's great for couples to, to get away. Denise and I, we try to do that every three to four months, even if it's just for a night or two, to just kind of get away by ourselves, to get away from you know, the chaos of, of our uh, lives and our house and you know, everything that's going on there. And, and we so much look forward to, I mean, he's my best friend, to just that time when we can be together. And, and like, there's a buildup. We're like, oh, I can't wait. Two more days and we're going to, you know, and it's in both of us. And I just really try to encourage couples to, you know, carve out special time like that to spend together. 
Notice number four, um, divine romance is meant to be sensuous. Look at verse nine. He says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace, he's saying that he's smitten by her. Verse 10, he says, how fair is your love. Literally, their love making. How, how fair is your love, my sister, myself? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? He's saying being with you, not just sex, but being with her is better than any earthly pleasure. He's saying nothing compares. Verse 11, your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So now he's, he's kissing her here. And what kind of kiss is this? It's not a French kiss, all right? I don't know where the French got the credit for this, because France didn't even exist as a nation until 9th century A.D. This predates France by 1,900 years. What this is is a good, holy Hebrew kiss, okay? That's <laughs> happening here. Kissing this way, it's lighting this fire. And at this point, Solomon is intoxicated by her at this point. Divine romance is sensuous. And that's what's happening here. There's a buildup to this. Now, what I'm going to say next might make some of you a little uncomfortable. But I think it needs to be said. I think one of the saddest things in the church is women who have sex, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll just use this term, and I don't mean to be crass by using this term, but this is what it's often called, is they'll, they'll have little quickies to keep their men from straying. It's like, you know, oh, I, I know i got to sleep with them to satisfy his sexual appetite. And men who settle for that, and a lot of guys do, and who don't put in the effort to romance their wives are missing out big time on what God has for them. Now, there is a place for that. And like I said, I mean, you know, you're, you, we can't experience this, what they're having on their honeymoon, all the time. But it can be, and parts of, parts of it can be the goal, though. But there are those places for that, you know, just... You know, in the mood, and it just kind of happens, and it's just not a big buildup. That's okay. That's okay, too. But the Lord's intent, and what we see here is that that's not what's happening here. There's, there's romance here. There, there, there's a, a romance that is building here. And you might say, yeah, but this is their honeymoon, and our honeymoon was great, too. But listen, I want you to catch this. God does not put this in the Bible. And again, guys, this is in the Bible. What we're looking at today, this is in the Bible. This is in the Word of God. God does not put this in the Bible to show us how to have a great honeymoon. Because I think almost every couple I've ever married, barring maybe two, had a great honeymoon. And I've married a lot, a lot of couples. But God puts this in the Bible to show us how to have a good love life. Okay? So, divine romance is sensuous. Number five, divine romance is responsive. 
Notice his response, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Now, here, catch this. Water in the Middle East was a rare commodity. And so anytime you find a spring in the desert you usually would find plant life around it. And because a spring in the desert was a rare commodity, an owner would often build a wall around the garden so that no one would come in and ruin it. And so what what Solomon is talking about here is this is symbolic. Her garden is symbolic of her body, and he's speaking of her virginity in the sense that, that she was a garden enclosed with a spring running through it. And the Bible refers refers to a man's sexuality oftentimes as a fountain, that makes sense to us, I think, and, and the woman's sexuality as a well, okay? And so what he's saying here is she has kept, or he has kept his fountain out of her well until this time. But then he says this, your plants are an orchard, verse 13, of pomegranates with pleasant fruits and fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. He is speaking here in a very picturesque way of her private parts as this garden with fruits and fragrances, as this well that has been off limits to him, but is now accessible on their wedding night. And he is being refreshed by it. And the idea is now they are married and he is being satisfied by her garden. This is all the foreplay leading up to and then we see her response in verse 16 she says awake O north wind and come O south and blow on my garden all right (laughs) that its spices may flow out twice in the book she says don't awaken love until it's time and now she says it's a time awake Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. She's inviting him to come and really have his way with her in this moment. You know, God knows that a man is energized sexually by what he sees and feels. And if nothing is withheld, he withholds nothing. Solomon's bride was not holding back. Great sex for a woman is tenderness. Great sex for a man is responsiveness. And this couple had deeply met their mutual needs. Now think about this. Remember how Jesus said that it's more blessed to give than to receive? I think that is a great marriage verse. It's often not quoted in that way. But he's saying it's more blessed, more happy, more fulfilling to give than to receive. And again, I think uh, Timothy Keller is helpful here in this. He, He wrote in his book, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. 
When you get to the place where giving arousal is the most arousing thing, you are experiencing this principle that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Keller adds, if your main purpose in sex is giving pleasure to your spouse, not getting pleasure, then even a person who doesn't have much of a sex drive can give to the other person as a gift and derive great pleasure in the process. I love that. It's a great picture of what's happening here. And I think when two people take that mentality, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and they apply that to every aspect of their marriage, including this one, it's so incredibly fulfilling. The sixth thing we want to note is that divine romance is rejuvenating. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Solomon's explaining that he is satisfied and blessed. It's like he's laying on his back and he's like, oh man, that was amazing. He's rejuvenated, he's refreshed by his wife. And divine romance is two people seeking to please each other and making the time to do that. And as they do that, their relationship is rejuvenated in the process. And so I just want to encourage to not neglect this part of the relationship. And I know sometimes with, you know, you have little ones, some of you, and, and you know, it can be hard, and it's hard to, to, to find the time and make the time. It's sometimes, it's sometimes hard to find privacy. Fight for it, though, because it's important. Now, I want you to notice the end of verse 1, because there's some con- controversy into who's talking here uh, and to whom. It's, it says, eat, O friends, and drink. Yes, drink deeply, Oh, beloved ones. This is where we're going to end tonight. Some think that this is Solomon saying to those who have gathered for the wedding reception, all right, start the party. The wedding's been consummated. Now, why would he do that? Well, in those days, the custom was that after the wedding ceremony, before the reception, the couple would go into the house, the cottage, to consummate their marriage, okay? And all the guests would wait outside the house. Talk about pressure, right? (laughs) Waiting for it to be consummated. And then once it was, the groom would come out and say, all right, and then the party would begin. And some people think that this is what this verse is talking about here. That Solomon's coming out and saying, it's done, let's party, eat, drink, let's go for it. But others see this, others see this as God coming and voicing his approval over what just happened. And I personally love that second view. This is God coming and saying, eat, oh friends, drink, drink deeply, beloved ones. And that brings me that, to point number seven, that divine romance is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. And I want you to think of it this way. You know, ladies, when you make a wonderful dinner and your family sits down around the table 
to eat that dinner and you see how much they're just enjoying that meal that you made, doesn't that just bless your heart? Aren't you just like, you know, don't you just smile, especially when, when they're appreciative. Like, oh, mom, this is great. You know, doesn't that just bless you? Or, you know, maybe you make a shirt or you make it for your son or you make a dress for your daughter. Or you go out and buy them, you know, something or some special, you know, shirt or something for your husband. Doesn't it just make you feel proud when you see them wearing that thing, proudly wearing that thing that you made? And it just, just like, oh. Or dads, you know, you build that bike for your son and you put it all together and then he gets on it and he's riding it for the first time and he's riding around the, you know, cul-de-sac or riding around the neighborhood, big smile. Doesn't that just light you up like, yes. Well, I think that's what's happening here, that this is how God feels. When a husband and wife are enjoying romance, the way that he designed it, he's pleased. He's blessed. He's like, this is awesome. And I know for some of you that maybe is just a weird thing to even think about because we, again, we, we've taken this beautiful thing that God has made this, to be in the marriage relationship, this sexual relationship, and we've distorted it and we've made it dirty and it's not meant to be. In the, in the marriage relationship that God, it's this beautiful thing. I think God looks down and he's just like, yes, that's exactly why I created this. For them to enjoy this and to connect with each other in that way. And so I want to wrap up tonight this study and this series by reading from 1 Corinthians 7. It's going to be on the screen, verses 2 through 4. And this is actually in the message version. I'm not always a big fan of the, the message. I think they, they, they take some liberties in their, their... It's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase. But I, I love the way they describe this portion of Scripture. So this is how it says... Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out of bed. Isn't that good? So, we're actually ending a little early tonight. In case you want to run home. <laughs> but I will say this, all right? I will say this. Remember what James said? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, all right? All right? So let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for these couples. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for this precious, wonderful thing that you have created for us in the marriage relationship. And I just pray, God, that, that we would be in this church couples who are enjoying our marriage relationship in every aspect. 
that we would be couples who are working on our marriage relationship like we would tend to a garden, that it might grow and blossom. And I pray, Lord, that each and every couple here and those who are watching online, that we would find ourselves falling more in love with you and more in love with our spouse that the marriages in this church would not be marriages that are merely surviving marriage, but we would be marriages that are thriving in our marriage relationships. So, Lord, I pray just blessing upon these men and women, these couples, and I ask, God, that you would um, just have your hand on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.